Good evening and welcome, friends, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, whether you're across town or across the globe. I sure hope uh, you enjoyed your Thanksgiving holiday. Well, me, myself, uh, and Roy, my honey, uh, we had a lot to be thankful for. Uh, You see, Roy, he actually found himself in the ER unexpectedly the night before Thanksgiving. He was having terrible pain in his stomach, in his back, in his chest, and shortness of breath. Yeah, uh, you better believe we were pretty anxious. Uh, But it turns out uh, it was just a kidney stone. Painful, you betcha, but not life-threatening. So our plans went a little askew this uh, Thanksgiving holiday, and we ended up having um, uh, turkey tacos for our Thanksgiving feast. But, hey, you know, we had immense gratitude for his health that it was something uh, that, that wasn't a lot worse. Well, if you're new to the show, I'm your hostess, Karen Tate, uh, named one of the 13 most influential women in goddess spirituality and a wisdom keeper of the goddess spirituality movement. And I thank you for taking your valuable time to be with me tonight and warmly invite you to partake of the wisdom sharing from this show that so many of you have lovingly called a treasure trove of wisdom for our time. And thanks to Celia, too, for that little snippet from her cut called Meta Prayer. Well, um, I hope you enjoyed uh, the last few weeks here on the show uh, during October and part of November. Uh, We had uh, a series called Honoring the Ancestors, Gone But Never Forgotten. Uh, If you missed it, uh, you can go back and hear the tributes to our foremothers and way showers, or in most cases, uh, their very own voices, because I've been so fortunate to have interviewed uh, many of them over the last decade. Uh, They have passed on, but uh, their work and their voices live on here at Voices of the Sacred Feminine. So please go back uh, to the archives, have a listen. Uh, We owe them so much. And turning our attention uh, to tonight's show, we have a dynamic duo for you, uh, Carol Christ and Judith Plaskow uh, are with me tonight discussing the new book they've co-authored, Goddess and God in the World, Conversations in Embodied Theology, combining autobiography and theology in a new method they called Embodied Theology, and we'll hear more about that in just a minute. Uh, But first, I have to make a quick shameless plug for my own new anthology coming out this month, tomorrow actually, uh, which I'm happy to say includes a wonderful essay from tonight's guest, Carol Christ, as well as Anne Baring, Rhianne Eisler, Starhawk, and many other important visionaries, and some new voices too. It's called Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward. Now, I don't think you can find it on Amazon yet, uh, at least not here in the States. Uh, It might be a few more weeks, but you can get an early signed copy from me uh, for $18, and I'll tell you how. You can either email me at karentate108 at ca.rr.com or go to the Goddess Store page of my website. That might be easier. And the website is my name, karentate.com. And you'll be uh, uh, one of the first ones to have your own signed copy and discover how goddess ideals go way beyond wood color candle to use on your altar. Goddess ideals are about social justice and the common good. 
And you might find it interesting to know the book is dedicated to Rhianne Eisler and both Bernie and Jane Sanders. As you've probably heard me say, Bernie's ideals are goddess ideals. So anyway, let's get to reconciling our spirituality and our politics. All right, uh, that little bit of housekeeping out of the way, uh, I want to get to the two ladies who have been patiently waiting on the line. Just in case these four mothers are new to you, let me introduce them to you by way of their bios, and then we'll begin what I promise is going to be a very interesting chat. Well, Carol Christ and Judith Plaskow, uh, they edited the groundbreaking anthologies Woman Spirit Rising and Weaving the Visions that Helped to Define the Study of Women and Religion. Judith is the author of Standing Again at Sinai, the first Jewish feminist theology, while Carol wrote Rebirth of the Goddess, the first goddess feminist theology. Carol and Judith met at Yale in the days when it was rare for women to study for PhDs and even rarer for women to study for PhDs in theology. Judith is a professor emerita at uh, Manhattan College and lives in New York City. She is co-founder of Journal of Feminist Studies and Religion. Carol has taught at many universities in the U.S. and Europe. She lives in Greece and has run for office with the Green Party in Greece. And she leads goddess pilgrimages to Greece as well. And uh, just some of their websites, um, Carol has uh, goddessariadne.org, uh, where you can find out about uh, her uh, sacred tours in, in Greece. And she blogs on Mondays uh, on Feminist and Religion at the website feminismandreligion.com. And uh, Goddess and God in the World is discounted uh, on amazon.com. So ladies, um, welcome to the show. Uh, nice to be with you again, Karen. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, this is uh, this is going to be an interesting chat. Uh, I, I've been looking forward to this. I have to say, uh, I think there's uh, so much to share, and I love the topic uh, of your book that you're combining these two ideas together. Uh, would you say this is something that um, hasn't been done before? And I wonder, is is there a reason why? And Carol, if you want to maybe go first with that. Um, I think that uh, there have been some people who have written autobiographically about their spirituality, certainly in the women's spirituality movement. Um, in terms of combining it with theology, there have been a few people who have started doing it, but often what happens is you get more autobiography than theology or vice versa. And um, what we try to do is really include the autobiographical roots of our views of the divine power um, along with uh, serious consideration of what we mean when we say goddess or God and then challenges back and forth uh, because we came up with very different ideas of what the divine power is. And yes, okay. I think that is, well, a new, that is a new method. Uh, it's been, it has roots in other people's work and, and in our own, but it's a new, we're proposing it as a new method of embodied theology. Well, 
Well, and ladies, I wonder too, you know, I, I have friends who are academics who are also, you know, uh, most of them, you know, or, or, you know, tend to be more goddess-oriented or pagan-oriented. And I thought maybe, and, and I could be wrong, and I don't care if you tell me I am, that's okay. I, I'd rather understand. Um, I, it's hard sometimes for academics to come out if they're not of a traditional religion as well. I mean, does, is, could, is that part of it? Well, I I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Carol left academia uh, and that I'm retired uh, when this book came out, so that made it a lot easier to write um, autobiographically. I think it's true that in the academy um, it's difficult to write in this vein. Whether whether one is in a traditional religious context or not, actually. Okay. Uh, well, I, I thought it might have made it harder if, because uh, I know some of my, uh, you know, friends and colleagues, you know, they sort of have to be in the closet, you know, if they're a pagan. Uh, you know, it, it's it's harder to write about being a pagan and be uh, a respected person in academia, but, uh, you know, maybe a little bit easier in the more traditional religions. But, uh, you know, it might have just been, uh, you know, kind of an assumption on my part. I, I would agree with you there, Karen. Um I think that uh, people who are more or less uh, explicating a traditional religion, let's say they're studying you know, the Talmud or they're studying the Bible, uh, New or Old Testament, um, they may have their own passions and they kind of agree with what they say the text says. So they don't have to really come out of even their own closet. Um, but yes, if you're doing constructive work, even if Judith is doing constructive, you know, changing, trying to change and transform Judaism, or myself moving beyond uh, the traditional religions and trying to find or create a new one, then they accuse you of not being objective, and they want you to yeah. be Okay. Well, yeah, well, thank you for that. Well, well, you know, I, I think probably the best thing to do is let's go back to the the beginning. Um, I didn't realize uh, that you two have been uh, friends and colleagues uh, for so long. You've, you've uh, been at it for four decades. And uh, why don't, uh, uh, Carol, you start off uh, by maybe telling us how you uh, met at Yale and what the situation for women was like there. And then we'll have uh, Judith tell us uh, you know, uh, from her perspective. Um, when I when I started to uh, study theology at Yale, I was essentially one of one of a hundred men, one woman among a hundred men, plus one nun who never showed up except for classes. And um, it was very difficult. Yale University itself was a all male university except for a few graduate students at the time. And all the walls were hanging with pictures of old white men in academic robes holding pipes or smoking cigars. And they just, uh, there was just a, a feeling that uh, I didn't belong. And um, I was actually, you know, I was uh, actually told that, in fact, it was said in public that women will never finish their degrees, they'll just get married, and things like that. Judith might want to pick up from there. Yeah, so Carol was a year ahead of me. Um, Carol, when I came in, there were 10 women out of 100 that year, so that was a big leap. Uh, but still, we were a tiny minority in the department. 
And my second year and Carol's third year was the year that Yale admitted women to the undergraduate college. And the university began to get ready for the education of women by putting full-length mirrors in the bathrooms and Mm -hmm. finally hiring a gynecologist for the health center. And three graduate women called the meeting to discuss how it was that there had been graduate women at Yale for 80 years and no one had noticed. Um, Carol and I (laughs) went to that meeting independently because we had not yet become friends, but um, after the meeting, we went out together to a local hangout and began to talk about our program and the problems we had with it, and we've been friends ever since. So well, we really so became poison. friends as we were becoming feminists. I see, I see. And um, one of the problems... I, I, we, I, go ahead. Go ahead. One of the problems that we faced uh, in different ways was um, that we we could we were being treated as more as if we were bodies than minds. So the issue of how women, you know, combine our intelligence with our bodies was an issue that we both faced on a very existential level, because um, we were just being viewed as women, not as women with minds. Mm, mm, mm. Um, any particular uh, memories uh, jump out at you that uh, you you feel you might want to share? Well, I was once introduced as our department bunny at a at a department meeting by one of the other students, meaning our department uh, playboy bunny. I I remember wow. an evening when a graduate when one of the perf- oh, oh, there was a visiting lecturer giving a lecture and he asked for some water and one of the professors in the department turned to us and said, "Get him a drink of water." Girls, girls, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> One of the men in the department jumped up, ran out of the room, and got the water. <laughs> wow. So do you do you think, um, I mean, obviously it was lack of awareness, but do you think uh, it was uh, an outright attempt to discourage you, or maybe uh, some of the men just really didn't know, um, you know, how to be with, uh, you know, women in this environment when, you know, there usually hadn't been? I would say that most all of them, or almost uh, you know, 100% of them, whether they were students or faculty, had wives who were um, devoting their lives to raising their children, preparing their meals, cleaning, their, cleaning up after them, ironing their shirts, um, and also typing their manuscripts and correcting their grammar and perhaps even their ideas as they went along. So they were used to having women in a servile or, or servant role, and I think that we were very threatening to that because they began to yeah. see that if we didn't take that role, what was what was that saying about their wives? Right, right. And and did you find that when it came to actually grading you and that sort of thing, um, you know, did you have to work? You know, the you know we typically hear women have to work twice as hard. Um, did you find that was the case uh, for you both as well? Uh, that uh, you had to work doubly hard to maybe get the same grade? I I think we were certainly looked at and judged a lot more carefully than the men. 
Um, there was a tendency to give graduate students good grades, so I don't remember ever feeling I got a particular grade because I was a woman. You know, and on the other hand, um, I think there was no question that um, we are we were looked at in a different kind of way. You might want to speak yeah. about your dis dissertation, Judith. Yeah, I mean, I wrote. Um, I ended up writing what I think was the second feminist dissertation in religious studies. Rita Gross had written the first, and uh, it was a feminist critique of Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr's Doctrines of Sin and Grace. And my director of graduate studies tried to discourage me from writing the dissertation. In fact, he said um, it would be interesting if I wrote on Niebuhr and Tillich without bringing in women. And when he handed it around to the department, because everybody had a right to read the proposal, he basically asked people to make negative comments about it, and they did. Didn't stop hmm. me from writing it, but um, it, it was clear that I was being discouraged. Right. I, I, I was told by the graduate studies when I finished my comps that um, a lot of, when, after they read my comps, the other professors were saying, oh, my God, she really can think, things like that. <laughs> well, and I was just about to say, Carol, uh, can you think of any uh, victories, you know, moments when you really just uh, knocked their socks off and, uh, you know, got them thinking, uh, uh, you know, out of that, uh, that sexist box? Well, we had a lecture series, um, and we brought Rosemary Ruther and several other speakers. And, um, you know, that was when we felt extremely proud that there were other women who were doing important work um, who were ahead of us uh, that we could present to the community as a whole. I wouldn't say I had any great victories, however, while I was at Yale, except for the fact that I got my Ph.D. finally. Um, I don't know about Judith. Well, it was actually very funny when I um, when I called my uh, ad advisor to when well, no, I called the director of graduate studies to find out whether I had passed my dissertation because I there isn't an oral defense at Yale and the committee met while I was living in Montreal and um he said yes i had passed and i said um do i need to be concerned when it goes up before the university committee and he said oh no not when you pass with flying colors like you did and it was clear to me that he would not have said that to me had i not pressed and asked him if there was going to be a problem he would have just said you passed congratulations wow so, so what is it like at Yale now for women? Uh, is it drastically improved, moderately improved? Um, what are what are women women facing today? Well, there are a lot more women um, who have PhDs in religion um, than there were when we started. Uh, they probably could have been counted practically on the fingers of two hands when we started. Um, but now there are hundreds of women who have PhDs in religion. Um, and many of them are doing feminist work. A large number are not. And um, we've, we hear that, you know, graduate women are being told, oh, don't, don't write a feminist dissertation because if you want to get a job, you don't want to rock the boat too much. You can do your feminist work later. 
and um, there are some women who buck that trend. But um, as you kind of noted in the beginning, Karen, um, most of the jobs in, for feminists in the field of religion are in Christian seminaries. So, yes, if you have any inklings towards uh, ideas of moving towards paganism or goddess or something like that, you often keep your mouth shut. Although I was really surprised at the AR this year um, on the panel discussing our book, Monica Coleman, who is a womanist or black feminist um, Christian theologian, announced that she was also a follower of Yoruba, uh, the African-based hmm. religion. And I was shocked that she felt she could do that. She does have tenure, and uh, I think she was just promoted to full professor. So I guess she felt safe to say that. Well, that's good for her. And But, you know, yeah. I almost wonder if, if what she has on her side uh, is the fact that, um, you know, with being African-American, that that maybe gives her, makes her feel a little bit safer. Um, you know, maybe, I, I don't know, this is just, you know, comes from my, you know, from my personal idea. But, uh, you know, maybe the Yoruban faith might not be looked, at the same as say Wicca you know I mean some people don't even look at Wicca as a real religion I think that's true but you know on the other hand she might face more more. she might have felt more afraid because she's you know a double minority that she had to toe the line even further she's a brave woman true, um, and she, she's a beautiful thinker well, and, and I mean, we we know that this uh, this goes on everywhere. I mean, look at the women in uh, archaeology too, who uh, uh, have have struggled so much. But uh, you know, fortunately, I, you know, things are getting better. But uh, you know, maybe still a long way to go. Yeah, I'd, I'd say there's a very long way to go in the field of archaeology. Um, Regan, yeah. well, not even discussed uh, for the most part. Or if she is, she's just laughed at and. Uh, that's a real tragedy, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think I think most of us. But uh, you know, one I, I I still hope one day she will be vindicated. Oh, well, uh, getting you. back to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. I just said I I do too. I hope yeah, she'll be vindicated. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there. Uh, you know, too many intelligent people realize that, uh, uh, you know, she did good work, and um, yeah, hopefully one day that will all be straightened out. Uh, but getting back to uh, to your book, uh, Goddess and God in the World. Uh, so, what made you decide to write this together, um, Judith? Maybe you want to begin. Well. Over the course of our friendship, Carol and I have had debates about a number of issues. One is the question of whether to stay within or leave the traditions of our birth. Um, throughout our friendship, I've been an engaged Jew seeking to transform Judaism from a feminist perspective, uh, whereas Carol left her Christian faith, uh, refusing to participate in a religious tradition that she believes has done harm and continues to do great harm in the world. And while we accepted each other's decisions, we also continued to have questions about each other's choices. 
And then secondly, when Carol was writing She Who Changes, in which she argued that process philosophy provides a coherent worldview compatible with feminist concerns, we discovered that we disagreed about the nature of divinity and divine power. For a long time, we tried hard to persuade each other of the validity of each of our positions, uh, but we were never able to convince the other. And so we decided, wouldn't it be interesting to write a book about our differences in which we talked about them, talked about how they're rooted in and emerge from the texture of our lives, and then question and debate each other? Interesting, interesting. Um, Carol? Yeah, I, there. although we disagree about the nature of divine power, there are many things we agree on. I think, you know, most people in our culture, including ourselves, began with the image of God as an old white man who lives in the sky or in heaven and rules the world from outside the world and who um, perhaps offers us, you know, eternal life in another world after this one. And um, we both reject that image um, squarely and firmly. Uh, We think that the image of God as male means that men get to think that they're gods, and we don't agree with that. So we're both strongly in favor of more inclusive language, including female and, you know, animal and plant and all other sorts of imageries. Um, And, of course, the image of God as white um, is also exclusive of people of color, both women and men, so we think that... Insofar as God is imaged or spoken of or pictured um, as a human, in human form, then there have to be many different shades of color um, of the skin of God or goddess. And um, we also, and this is part of the title of our book, Goddess and God in the World, we also believe that um, the divine power is meant to be found in the world and the idea that there's a transcendent or other realm that we're headed for. Um, is something we both reject. So we think that the divinity is found in the world, the purpose of our lives is to be found in the world, and that means also that um, one of the purposes of our lives is to make this a more just and harmonious world for human beings and for all beings in the web of life. Judith, okay. might you take up from and- there? Uh, well, that's well Judith, I was going to ask you. I was I was going to ask you, coming from Judaism, um, at what point did you discover a feminine face of God? I mean, I, obviously, um, Shekinah is is part of Judaism, but um, you know, I, I still, you know, she's not primary. I don't think, right? Right, um, and the female image has never been primary for me. Um, But um, Carol and I developed our critique of male language together, really, beginning from when we were graduate students at Yale. And um, at that point, I became very aware of the destructive nature of overwhelmingly male imagery. Um, As Carol said, uh, if God is male, a male is God. And for me, there was a very clear connection that I saw early on between the maleness of God and the subordination of women within the uh, narratives of the Torah and also within the people of Israel and in in most denominations in Judaism. And I felt 
um, that really the only way to break the power of the male image is through female images because when we move from male language to gender neutral language, which really all the liberal prayer books in Judaism have done, I think we're still filling in the language with male images. And it, you know, female images have tremendous iconoclastic power. Uh, so I've always affirmed the importance of female imagery. Okay. Well, and and I wonder, Judith, what made you? And I'm gonna. I want to ask Carol the same question. Uh, Judith, what made you decide to try to uh, make things better from the inside of the system? And then I, I want to hear, obviously, from Carol, what uh, what made her feel like she could be more effective, um, you know, to create change working outside the system. But Judith, why don't you go first? Yeah, it it wasn't so much a matter of deciding I can be more effective inside than outside. It was the fact that I am a Jew and that there are many aspects of Judaism that I find powerful and nourishing. And I felt that if I left, and of course I always had Starhawk as a model of someone who was ethnically Jewish, but... Uh, who had chosen God as spirituality, but I felt if I did that, that I would be fundamentally divided, and I didn't want to be fundamentally divided. And when I had the opportunity to teach about Jewish feminist theology and to raise fundamental questions about uh, the patriarchal nature of Judaism, i that's where I felt most fully empowered. That's where I felt the different aspects of my being coming together most richly and fully. And and that was the exciting place that I wanted to be. Okay. And Carol? Um, Well, I obviously began uh, studying Christian theology. Um, Unlike some of my colleagues or some of the other students and faculty, I came from a mixed marriage, so I had Roman Catholicism on one side and Christian science on the other, and beyond the behind the Christian science, Quakerism and Protestantism, and traditional Protestantism. So um, I never had a strong feeling that I was this. I mean, many Catholic women tell me, you know, they can't give up their Catholicism for some of the same reasons that Judith said about Judaism. But, uh, and others even will say that about Methodism or Episcopalianism. It's just part of who I am, part of my family. It's my whole identity, my ethnic identity is tied up to it. And I never felt that way. Um, so for me, um, as I became a feminist, the male language uh, graded on me so strongly that I really couldn't, I was going to a Catholic folk mass every Sunday, and I couldn't go anymore because every time I heard God the Father, God the King, God the Ruler, um, Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, um, all of these things just made my my back hunch up and my stomach churn, and I felt like I wanted to throw up. So I physically couldn't couldn't continue. And for me, it wasn't just the maleness of the language. It was during the Vietnam War, 
and I was very much against the war, and yet I would hear that, you know, God is a warrior. He overthrew the horsemen of the pharaoh and things like that. And I didn't feel Christianity was a whole lot better because the Christian God, um, you know, he's, he consigns people to hell, and that's uh, not exactly a loving, uh, that's a violent act in my book. And then I also became aware of anti-Judaism, that the Jews rejected Christ, and how that's led, you know, that fed into the Holocaust, which was the subject of my dissertation. So those three things, um, the violence of God, the maleness of God, and the anti-Judaism within the tradition made me feel that I I, I didn't want to continue. And, I, and physically, it wasn't a choice in the same way. It wasn't a choice for Judas. Physically, I just couldn't do it anymore. And then I realized that in, I had never believed in some of the basic Christian doctrines. I never believed that God was a trinity. I always believed there was one God. And um, I never really believed in the doctrine of hell, that, that a, a kind and good God could, could send people to hell. So those were some of the issues that I, that I was struggling with as I left Christianity. And, of course, finding, um, meeting Starhawk, which was a very decisive moment for me when I went to one of her first workshops um, and heard her talk about the goddess and how the goddess was connected to nature and the processes of birth, death, and regeneration. It just made sense of many of my childhood experiences of divine power, which had occurred in nature. And I was looking for a female image of God, and I found it. So, Carol, when someone comes up to you and maybe they don't know who you are and know about your books and they say, uh, what is your religion? How do you, how do you answer? Well, it depends on who's asking. My most precise precise answer, if if I was in a pagan group or talking to you, um, would be that I'm a goddess feminist. And it worries me that many of the younger or newer pagans, and some of the older ones as well, are not feminists. And they're not critiquing, you know, their own own gods and goddesses. They're embracing the gods of war in, in the Greek myths or in the Norse myths or other myths. And they're embracing some patriarchal elements of those myths and not critiquing them. So I always say I'm a goddess feminist. Of course, if I'm talking to the general public who's not at one of my lectures, I'm just talking to someone on the bus or something like that, I'll say, you know, I believe in in Mother Earth or I believe in ecology and Mother Earth or something like that. But I always say I'm a feminist, a goddess feminist. Okay. All right. Um, so, um, okay, uh, and, and getting back to the book again, uh, kind of focusing on the subtitle now, uh, Conversations in Embodied Theology. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, uh, you're combining autobiography and theology and a new method that you called embodied theology. Uh, talk a little bit more about um uh, you know, theologians, um, you know, who don't really speak too much about their personal experience. You know, in, in a way, that seems odd to me because um, it's through our stories, I think, uh, in a sense, that we that we bond and maybe we influence uh, each other. Uh, but anyway, you know, you know, tell me both of your thoughts on, you know, what led you to start doing this now and um, – you know why it's uh, why you think it's important and 
you know, and, and I, I think this is a new trend. Uh, elaborate on that a bit, if you would. Maybe Judith, uh, do you, did you want to begin? Sure. Um, I think that our inability to convince each other of the truth of our positions when we had marshaled our best and most brilliant rational arguments made us realize that while rational argument is very important in theology, it's important to give reasons for one's beliefs, and we do that at many points in the book, that rational argument isn't enough, that our theologies emerge from the texture of our lives. They're rooted in our experiences of our bodies and our communities and our histories. And um, we felt the need to explore those histories in order to I think in order to both be clear for ourselves where our theologies were coming from and to be clear for our readers and to invite our readers to engage in a similar exploration of their own lives. Okay. And I'll I'll, um, tackle that question from a a slightly different direction. Of course, what Judith said I completely agree with. Um, but we also um, began our, our when we became feminists, both Judith and I insisted that women's experience had been left out of theology and left out of most Christian and Jewish thinking. And um, so we we were from the beginning saying women's experience must be included. And then the question comes, how do you define women's experience? And you know, some people have. Um, using what we might call stereotypical notions, women are more emotional, men are more rational, women are more giving, men are more judging, things like that. Uh, that didn't really, we didn't really feel that we wanted to go that direction. And then, of course, there was the critique that when women started talking about their about women, women's experience, a lot of times we were talking about white women's experience and not including the different experiences of women of color. And in a way, I think this is a, you know, another step um, in in an attempt to talk about women's experience that maybe we have to start with the personal. And we can't define black women's experience in general or white women's experience in general or heterosexual women's experience. We really need to talk about, um, to start from the personal, not just from a concept of women's experience. Well, let me ask you both. Did you feel at all um, it was a little bit of a risk uh, to speak about your spirituality when in so many quarters these days the idea of uh, being religious or being spiritual uh, is looked upon as uh, anti-intellectual? I I think one of the things that we're trying to do in the book is to speak to people who are generally well-educated and well-informed about the world, but whose religious school education might have stopped in Sunday school, or they may have none. Uh, And we were trying to, we are trying to speak about religious experience and religious ideas in a sophisticated and informed way, again, in order to give people permission to talk about the spiritual aspects of their own lives and to explore 
their own experiences. I mean, in the um, in the Jewish tradition, it's actually very difficult for people to speak about God. Um, behavior is more important than belief, and people who are very engaged Jewishly often have difficulty speaking about God and yet may feel that there's something missing in their lives. And it's been my experience that when you ask people to talk about their ideas of God, they're nervous, they're tentative, but they're also immensely grateful to have a context to talk about things that are really deeply important to them uh, that are marginalized. Uh, Certainly, I mean, not, not traditional uh, religious Christian beliefs, conservative Christian beliefs get a lot of play in our culture, uh, but other religious beliefs don't. Well, and and I wonder too. I mean, even in our goddess circles, you know, uh, you know, I've been part of a wisdom circle for a number of years, and um, every year we tend to, you know, kind of revisit some of the same questions to see if our perspective has changed or our experiences have changed. And it's really hard to get people to language. Um, how do you experience goddess? You know, um, and maybe for some of them, you know, some of them maybe have a left brain perspective. Some may have a right brain perspective. Uh, maybe some are just worried about how they're going to be judged. Maybe some have never really had a personal experience. Um, I, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? I mean, is it, uh, you know, ha- have you just, you know, uh, come across the same thing? I have, but it's my experience that. Everybody has had a personal experience if you give them permission to name it. So, so many times I've been in a in a group where I've asked people to talk about some spiritual experience, and they'll say, well, I don't know that I've ever had an experience like that. Do you mean something like X? And then they'll uh, talk about some incredible experience they had. And, yes, that was exactly what I meant. But there isn't permission somehow to talk about it. And I would say that in – I wonder if it's – Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Carol. I would say that in some um, goddess circles there's a feeling that there is kind of a stereotyping that, you know, rational talk is male and it's been – punishing and judgmental towards us, which it certainly has, all three of those. It has been male, it has been punishing and judgmental. And so some women feel more comfortable not not getting into that level of discussion. They'd rather just stay on the emotional or symbolic or intuitive um, levels, which are also very, very important. Um, But um, I think that they can be joined together, and that would mean that um, the way we think about rationality would become more embodied and therefore it wouldn't be um, the disembodied rational thought that we've we've have found as women often um, not not speaking to us well and I think there's also the aspect of you know it's been said that you that maybe you feel goddess more than you think goddess if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah and I think, I mean, I believe that all feeling is the origin of all thinking, um, and therefore feeling goddesses would be the beginning point, 
but then we can also articulate that because uh, we know that there's a lot of crazy people running along, running around with a lot of weird ideas that they claim are based in their feelings or in their, you know, their uh, revelation of divinity. And I think it's important that we we can affirm our feelings as where as what we need to articulate, um, rather than uh, dismissing our feelings, but also right. also articulating them as well. Um, I, a question for uh, for either of you, uh, if, if if this resonates with one of you more than the other, uh, sort of the topic of feminism versus spirituality. Um, I mean, I haven't made a, a you know a, a thorough study of feminism, obviously, but I have a sense that there was a a break between the two, and somehow feminism went off in one direction, and spirituality or religion went off in the other. Did that have anything to do with the battles over abortion or something else, or am I totally, um, uh, you know, misinformed here and that there wasn't really a break between the two? Because I get the sense that maybe they somehow have to be brought back together again. Well, I I think that um, from the beginning of the feminist movement, there were women who were engaged in their religious communities who were bringing feminist questions to those communities and to their religious lives. So um, it's certainly true that there was a strand within feminism that saw religion as completely and unalterably patriarchal and therefore not worth looking at or talking about. There was certainly a strand in feminism that saw uh, religious language as a distraction from the real political and social issues in women's lives. But I think that simultaneously, you know, very early on, there were always women um, who were working to transform and envision new modes of religion. Can okay. I speak? Yeah, I, I would agree with you uh, also, Karen. I mean, I agree with what Judith just said, but I do think there was a, especially a kind of a backlash against the women's spirituality movement, um, and all of all religious feminists sort of got thrown into that. But... Um, I think there was a big backlash against the women's spirituality movement, and I think it was misperceived because I think at its best, the women's spirituality movement has been struggling to unite mind and body and has been struggling to unite nature and spirit or nature and mind. Um, and in a lot of the people that I've read who dismiss both ecofeminism and women's spirituality said, you know, all they're saying is that women are nature and women are irrational and women are intuitive and um, they sort of stereotyped us as being um, less interested in integrating the spirit and the mind or the body and the mind or nature and the mind. And so they thought we were irrational. And they, I, I feel there has been a great backlash both against ecofeminism and a women's spirituality. And one of my friends who's well, Catholic says that she also feels that she often talks to other feminists. They say, how can you be a Catholic and, you know, why don't you just give it up? You know, that kind of thing. 
Well, and, and, and then the sort of the flip side of the coin, you know, one of the frustrations that I've personally had is, you know, when you're in the pagan community or the Wiccan community, I mean, you know, I don't know which label to use exactly because, I mean, you know how that is. Yeah. Um, you know, it... <laughs> Uh, you know, this whole idea that, you know, people are more concerned about what color candle to put on their altar than connecting the dots between, say, spirituality and morality or spirituality and politics or, you know, spirituality and the common good or social justice. Um, you know, why do you think that breaks down that, um, you know, that, the, I mean, obviously if you're, you know, you follow Starhawk, well, you, you know, that you know you you know there is social justice involved with you know paganism but so many people i find just don't have a clue and um is it just the failure of uh you know of of paganism because we don't have um credentialed institutions or um you know baseline curriculums that sort of uh, you know marry the two I'd throw that's that to Carol. A, that's a really big question. <laughs> I don't think I have. I mean, I I share your um, unease about it, and um, I uh, I don't know. I'm I'm not so interested in in magic and spell casting for personal or even for political purposes. I think we have to, you know, act in the world. And um, yeah, I think there is a tendency of part of some pagans not to not to. Uh, to want to just do everything through spell casting, sort of the way some people who go into Eastern religions want to do everything through meditation. Um, I don't agree with that. Judith, do you want to say something about it? I think that's more your <laughs> okay. your topic when it comes to the relationship between paganism and social justice. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's move on to something else. Um, you know, the subject of women's spirituality, uh, you know, it's been a hot topic for women for lots of years and uh, at the same time I suspect that many women are more interested in ritual participate participation and symbolism than theology. Um as you say in the intro of your book, many people are hesitant to speak of their beliefs. Um was there any more you wanted to say about what led you to write about this in uh, in many ways an unspeakable topic? Well, I think it's certainly the case that um, ju- that ritual participation has been enormously important to Jewish feminists. And one of the tremendous contributions of Jewish feminism has been to the transformation of ritual. Uh, And there's actually a wonderful website, ritualwell.org, where there are rituals for everything that you can think of um, and some things that you would never think of. Um, But it seems to me that underlying uh, the creation of rituals is always some set of beliefs about the world, you know, a worldview uh, that talks about what matters and how the world works. And um, I think that we lose something if we're not able to articulate those beliefs that underlie our practice. And what we're trying to do in the book is model um, 
talking about belief and give people a vocabulary to talk about belief in a more uh in a richer and a more substantive way. Okay. Um Carol, any thoughts, sir? Yes, I mean, I would say that when you're creating ritual, especially uh, whether you're translating, you know, from um, Christian or Jewish ritual, or whether you're um, creating new rituals, there's always a question of, well, what new language will we use? Um, Do we translate king of the universe to queen of the universe? Do we, uh, and we can certainly find examples of of queens in uh, goddess traditions, whether it's Celtic or Greek or um, Egyptian, um, but I personally would say that I don't want to. I don't want to imagine the divine under a hierarchical relationship like that, dominating in some way over others, uh, as queens have done in the past, having slaves and servants and all of that, um, and then <clears throat> also taking um, all the riches of their well, their realm into their own uh, hands. Um, so, I, so I think we need to talk about what is the nature of this divine power that we're trying to symbolize and ritualize. And um, I know we're coming to the end of our time, so I think I'll, I'll take a stab and then Judith can go. Um, for me, um, the goddess is the... In- for me, the goddess is the intelligent, embodied love that is in all beings. And it's not an omnipotent power. It's not a power to control or determine, uh, but it's a power that is in us and um, also outside of us, that speaks within us, is as close to us as our own breath and our own bodies, and is always inspiring us to be um, the best that we can be, shall we say, to be more loving, to be more understanding, and to create um, a more harmonious world so that um, as many beings as possible and as many human beings as possible can experience joy in their lives. Okay. And yeah, and for me on the other hand, God is the impersonal creative energy that underlies, animates and sustains all existence. I see God as the ground of both good and evil. The wholeness, inclusiveness and all-embracing oneness of God are much more important to me than the concept of goodness. So Carol and I um, disagree about two major points is God or goddess personal or impersonal and is goddess or God um, only good or the ground of both good and evil and I would imagine in the book you thoroughly explore those differences yes we do mm-hmm. <laughs> and challenge each other on them <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I like this this phrase you use, uh, flourishing of the world. Um, you know, you both say that theologies have social, political, and environmental consequences, and that one uh, one of the ways we can judge them is by asking if they promote the flourishing of the world. Um, it, explain what you mean, uh, or, or maybe you kind of just did a bit, uh, Carol, uh, but, but did uh, either of you want to speak to that a bit? Go ahead, Judith, you can start. Um, Well, um, as Carol commented initially, um, we both believe that the traditional view of God as a white male who rules the world from outside has 
contributed to um, destructive and hierarchical human relationships. Uh, that that view of God justifies male domination. It justifies relationships of dominance. More generally, it's been appealed to um, as uh, God is on our side in a particular war. Um, so what we ask in the book, uh, central question we ask in the book is what uh, what images of God can t- contribute to our, our valuing the world or seeking to create a world that's more just, um, our uh, enjoying our lives in the world um, in a way that creates justice for a maximum number of people. Um, and we believe that um, both of our views contribute more fully to the potential flourishing of the world than the traditional view. And at the same time, we recognize uh, that there are different strengths in our view. Uh, My view that God encompasses both good and evil means that we really need to look at and acknowledge the evil in ourselves and our communities, whereas Carol's view of God as good provides a vision uh, that inspires us to create more justice in the world. Okay. Uh, Carol, a flourishing, uh, flourishing of the world. Um, one of the philosophers that I've used a lot in my work, and he's one of the few male thinkers that I really um, cherish, is Charles Hartshorn, and he wrote an article, Do Birds Love to Sing? And um, I feel that, um, in my view, uh, this idea that that love is at the basis of much of the world, um, whether it's the mother-child relationship, whether that be in humans or animals, or whether it be that love that of loving to sing, um, this is where I find um, the divine power. And um, for me, it. Although I recognize that there is a creative energy in the universe that is both good and evil, both life and death, uh, for me the divine power is more than that. It's um, it's a power that loves and understands the world and promotes love and understanding in the world. Okay. Um, but but, but different more. from the traditional God, it's in the world. It's not outside the world. And it's not all powerful. I, it, it doesn't uh, determine our fates or destinies before we're born or at any other time. Um, it's everything that happens is not the will of the goddess. Um, the goddess, I don't think, really likes a lot of things that are going on in our world, and they're not her will. Um, but she doesn't have all the power. We have part of the power, and and with that part of the power, we've created lots of things that the goddess doesn't like. And so she's always inspiring us to see that and to see the injustice and to see the suffering and to work to transform it into more joy. So would you say, Carol, that uh, when someone um, engages goddess, so to speak, um, for healing or whatever, um, do you think those kinds of prayers are heard and answered potentially? I, I think they're heard. Um, I don't think the goddess has the power to answer all prayers. 
So in my own case, you know, I've spent a lot of my life praying or doing spells or hoping or whatever, wishing to find my true partner in life. And I never found her or him. And, um, you know, that was like the goddess didn't give me what I wanted. And I finally had to come to say, and no matter how much I prayed and what a good, you know, goddess worshiper I was and all of that. Um, and um, I finally had to come to the conclusion that that's not within her power, whether that be to, you know, to not let my mother die of cancer, not let my baby brother die when he died, um, not let me find my true love. Those things on the personal level, not within her power in every case, um, and certainly on the larger level. Um, she probably didn't want Trump to get elected, um, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people voted for him, um, and she probably didn't want the Holocaust to happen, but it happened. So I think there are a lot of things that are not within the goddess' power to to offer us, to, to, to create on her own power. She can inspire us to create them with working with her energies and her power, but her power is not the only power. As far as healing, well, though, I, I, think we, I think we can, you know, work with healing ourselves and healing our world and bringing the goddess energy into that. I think very much so. That's, uh, she's always there grounding our attempts to heal ourselves and heal our world. doesn't mean we always get what we want, though. So uh, I'm, uh, you know, you, you're, you're sort of triggering some other questions, Carol. Um, the idea of goddess. Uh, would you do you sort of have a monotheistic view, or uh, the idea? As one of my friends said, she thinks of goddess as a diamond, and all of the different goddesses or facets of that one diamond. Um, just you know, wondering your thoughts on that. Uh, yes, I would say that my view is. It's not traditional monotheism. Uh, Judith and I both say that we're inclusive monotheists, and that means that we believe there's a unity of being that underlies all the diversity and multiplicity of the world, um, and that would be the, the mono or the one, um, the one goddess. Um, and yet there's no one image, or, or whether it's verbal or um, you know, uh, artistic, that can capture that. So we need all the multiplicity of the world, not only the human world, but also the non-human or other than human world, to be reflected in our, in, as you say, the facets of the, 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 the diamond. Um, in, in Judith, about um, um, feminism within uh, Judaism, I've had some folks on the show over the years and some women, uh, you know, speak about uh, uplifting Shekinah, you know, the feminine face of God, making her equal or primary. Um, is is that a big movement? Is that catching on? Um, just wondering your thoughts on that. Um, in the the short answer is no. Uh, <laughs> that the um, I mean, there are certainly um, groups within Judaism who address. God as Shekhinah and use Shekhinah language, but they're a minority. Um, and, um, you know, certainly people who make that the central image are a minority. I mean, one of the things I, I think is very sad is that the whole issue of God language was more on the Jewish feminist agenda <clears throat> through the mid-90s than it is today, that it's kind of fallen off the edge you know again there are people who are talking about it and 
and uh, and praying to and, and using various female images of the divine. Um, but it's it's not it's it's no longer um, an intense issue um, among Jewish feminists. I think. Uh, well, about uh, feminism, um, do you? I mean, I, I think we might all agree that feminism needs to be rehabilitated. Uh, <laughs> do you think that's that that might be part of the problem, so to speak? Yes, I do. I do think it's part of the problem that that um, that there's been such dramatic changes in the roles of women uh, in Judaism in the last fifty years. Um, certainly in non-Orthodox Judaism, but even within Orthodoxy, that there's a tendency for people to feel that. Um, Feminism is no longer needed. We're in a post-feminist era, and you know we're about as much in a post-feminist era as we are in a post-racial era. Um, that that the 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 presence of women in leadership roles in large numbers distracts attention from the profound issues that haven't been addressed and haven't changed. Okay. I, I do want to say well, one word about Shahina, though, and that is the Shahina is um, in 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 Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism is very much a subordinate image uh, within the <clears throat> Godhead. It's one of the ten emanations of God, the the one that's closest to us. That's the divine presence in the world. But the Shahina is never equal to. Um, the male godhead. Okay. So it's it you know um, it, in so far as it's claimed by feminists, it really needs to be rethought. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, and, and and that that was my sense of it. Uh, to tell you the truth, you know, I, I guess I had hoped otherwise, but I but that was my sense of it. And finally, Carol, uh, one last question. I'm going to then let you both have you know one final word to sort of wrap it up. Um, do you, Carol? Do you? Uh, if somebody says, Carol, who is your goddess? Uh, do you have a particular one you have maybe an affinity for? Um, I I would say uh, it would be um, the earth or the goddess as she's in the earth, if I want to be more technical about it. Um, I don't uh, have a particular, like, Greek goddess that I love. I used to love Aphrodite, but that's long in the past. And I think in terms of uh, imagery, I'm much more interested in um, the earlier images, the pre-patriarchal images that come from the Neolithic and the Paleolithic. So... In my own on my own altars, I have images that are part part that are female. They have breasts, but they're also they also have wings. They also look like mountains, and they're they incorporate. Um, they're not strictly personal, but then when I think of when I pray to the goddess or think about the goddess, I think of her as embracing me. Um, I can feel her right around my you know in my aura, shall we say, and within me, and I feel that she's. So I don't, and then in that sense, she's not really an image. It's more of a feeling. Um, but she would, of course, not just be embracing me, but embracing everything and everyone. 
Okay. Um, so, ladies, um, just as a wrap, I know we've talked about a lot, but maybe uh, there's some things I haven't thought to ask you. Maybe there's an um, important point you want to make. Um, please uh, take a moment, uh, each of you, to um, have a final word. And since we just uh, heard Carol, Judith, why don't you go first? Well, I think I would just say that all the things that we've talked about and many more are discussed at length in our book, Goddess and God in the World, Conversations in Embodied Theology, and that people who want to hear more and continue the conversation um, should go out and order it. (laughs) Well, then I'll I'll take that opportunity to encourage women to come on the Goddess Pilgrimage to Creed. Uh, org, where you will live for two weeks in the company of women seeking the goddess and perhaps come to feel in your bones that another way is possible. And I also want to mention that in the next week or two, um, I also have another book coming out, A Serpentine Path, which is a revisioning of my original Odyssey with the Goddess, A Serpentine Path, Mysteries of the Goddess, and it will be on Amazon hopefully by the end of the year. Okay. Okay. And um, are are either of you doing any uh, classes or workshops or book signings anywhere anytime soon? We're going to be speaking at the University of Alabama in Huntsville in uh, uh, the end of March. I think that's our next thing coming up. And, and we're hoping to... Um, since I'll be in the country at that time, we're hoping that if anyone would like to invite us to speak together about our book, that would be the time in, in March or early April. I mean, get in touch with us about the dates. And, um, I, of course, I have a goddess pilgrimage to Crete in the spring and the fall of 2017. Uh, and uh, what you just said, Carol, that you're going to be in the States, East Coast or West Coast? Well, getting as far as Alabama... So um, okay. whether, we, you know, whether we get to, well, we, uh, whether we get to the west coast or not, I guess depends on who asks us. And okay, okay, well, they, you know, they need you down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, they definitely need you down south, but you'll probably want to get out of there quickly. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm from New Orleans, so and, and I still have friends there, and they they swear I'm going to burn in hell. But you know, I'm not too worried about it. <laughs> Well, ladies, um, thank you so much uh, for tonight. I, I've appreciated uh, the conversation and the insight, and uh, I hope you both enjoyed yourself too, and um, I'm sure listeners will look forward to uh, picking up uh, your book, Goddess and God in the World, Conversations in Embodied Theology. Uh, I wish you both a uh, happy holiday and uh, best of luck with the book. Thank you. Happy holidays for to you us. too. Okay. Good night, ladies. Thank you. Good night, Karen. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you all enjoyed uh, that uh, conversation with both those wonderful ladies. And uh, interesting book. Uh, I I would love to to read that book and uh, hear them try to convince each other uh, of their positions. I think that would be a lot of fun. So I think you probably will too so pick that up uh again goddess and god in the world conversations in embodied theology 
Um, and uh, we will turn our attention to uh, Joe Carson. Uh, uh, owe her a little bit of time here, so have a listen. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. This is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, you were listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of the goddess as Gaia. Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot the film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them yourself but haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. And uh, before I say goodnight, uh, I want to remind you to click the follow button so you get notice um, of uh, the broadcasts of um, Voices of the Sacred Feminine every week um, so that you don't rely on emails from me or maybe um, some of the you know Facebook posts uh, because I don't always get a chance to uh, post before or after the show. And uh, a reminder about how important it is to understand and practice the concept of what we nourish thrives and what we neglect withers. Uh, That goes for uh, your life and all its phases. Uh, Feed what nourishes you. And uh, with that being said, if this show nourishes you, uh, if it gives you inspiration or insight, then please feed it (laughs) so it grows and thrives. Um, Don't be one of those people that only takes. Uh, Don't be one of those people who treats... um, generosity from others like an ATM machine and you only go there to take something out. Um, Many people think of goddess like that. You know, they'll go to goddess and constantly ask for things uh, when there's not really reciprocity. You know, there's not really a relationship. There's there's no give and take. Uh, That said, uh, say a prayer of thanks uh, to Goddess before you go to sleep tonight, thanking her for the grace she's bestowed upon you in this life, if that's something you feel comfortable doing. Or, you know what, call a friend or a loved one and say thank you for what they've given you. Uh, Gratitude and appreciation are the uh, gas in the tank of your life. It keeps you going. Fill it, and uh, you'll speed along down the road. Only take and never give back, and you'll find your life sputtering down the road or maybe broken down and crashed in the ditch. So I just want to remind you about uh, my new book. Uh, It would be great if you could say thanks uh, for what the show has given you uh, by going to my webpage and purchasing one of my books, especially maybe uh, the newest one, um, 
Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward. Um, you know, I alluded to uh, to uh, the the point of this uh, new anthology in the conversation with Carol. You know, so often uh, people learn about goddess spirituality or or uh, a part of goddess spirituality, and uh, they you know maybe because of you know maybe the teachers they've had or the books that they've read um you know they'd never go beyond you know doing ritual or astrology or tarot or energetics you know they never get to uh the parts about social justice and how the values of the sacred feminine can actually make the world a better place you know uh how the values of the sacred feminine actually provide us with a road map uh, to uh, create a new normal because you know unless we can vision it we uh, will never make it happen you know one idea comes to mind if you were an old trekkie like me look at how star trek influenced technology you know the tablet the flip phone you know i think sometimes we humans have to um, be inspired by something uh, you know you know the idea uh you know has to uh has to enter before we can then um take action to uh actually make something happen so um with a lot of my writing including this last anthology uh as with this show uh what we are trying to do is uh plant seeds you know plant new ideas uh, because you know that old saying, if we keep doing things the same way we've always done them, we will not get a different result. So I, I believe the people who have contributed to this anthology, uh, as well as some of my writings like uh, Goddess Calling, it gives us an idea of what can be. Because too often we just accept things as normal that maybe should never uh, have been accepted as normal. And maybe they're things that we really want to change but don't really know how to change them. Uh, and we're looking for fresh ideas. We're looking for a new path. And I think uh, Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward, it helps along those lines. Uh, also, if you go to my um, the Goddess Store page of my website at KarenTate.com, um, I have some special batches. I call them book batch sales. Uh, if you buy um, uh, several books, two or three books, uh, they're at a special uh, uh, quantity rate. And uh, lots of the books have also been reduced for the holidays. So uh, if you've been a listener of the show, whether you're a new listener or an old listener, and uh, um, you know maybe uh, you've gotten a lot out of the show, uh, think about maybe now's the time to give back a little bit. Uh, I would sure appreciate it. Um, so uh, take a look at, uh, at one of my books, a new one or an old one. They're all still just as relevant uh, as the day they were written. So in closing tonight, uh, let me again repeat what uh, have become the mottos for the show. Uh, what all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it is accepted for being self-evident. Uh, those words uh, were spoken by the 19th century German philosopher, author Schoenhauer. And um, the second motto of the show is attributed to Gandhi. 
Uh, he said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And you know what? That's how change happens. Well, that about does it for tonight, listeners. I hope uh, you enjoyed the interview. Uh, I certainly enjoyed speaking to Judith and Carol. I want to wish you a great holiday season, and uh, I will be back again next Wednesday. Uh, I hope you will join me then. Uh, Thanks, as always, for your listener loyalty, and, uh, you know, you continue to be the gas in my tank. I love hearing from you uh, and getting your emails and your show ideas. So uh, I will go ahead and close the show uh, the way I opened it by, you know, playing some music here of Celia. Again, I will uh, put on uh, her uh, single, Meta Prayer, but this time you'll get to hear the whole thing instead of just the introduction. So enjoy, uh, my dear friends and colleagues, and uh, thank you so very much uh, for taking your time and uh, here with me tonight. Good night.
me. 